the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Luke. God sent Jesus, the Messiah of the world, down to save us. Jesus worked many miracles, healing the sick, cleansing lepers, causing the lame to walk and the blind to see. Many demons were cast out in his name. Jesus sent out his disciples to preach the good news of repentance, to turn away from sin and prideful arrogance, thinking that one could save themselves, and turn to God, humbly acknowledging he is the only way to true life. We join Pastor Will in Luke chapter 10. When we left off last week in our study of Luke with an answer to an important question, remember the lawyer came to Jesus, the expert in the law of Moses, and said, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? How do I get to heaven? And Jesus explained, well, if you're going to try to get to heaven, try to earn your way to heaven, God's requirement is loving him perfectly and loving others perfectly, always. Now, of course, none of us can do that. So since we don't do that, it points us to our need for a savior. But that idea that the standard is loving God with all that's in us, it hints at another truth that salvation or being in heaven is more than just an achievement. It's not something we achieve, but rather it has to do with relationship. It it hints at the truth that the way we get to heaven is not through our works, but through our faith in the Savior, but it also hints at the truth that the most important thing in our lives is to be our relationship with God. And so as Jesus stops in his travels to see some friends, this truth will be illustrated in a way that challenges us. You know, is my relationship with the Lord the most important thing in my life? So chapter 10, we begin in verse 38. It says, now it came to pass as they went, that's Jesus and his crew, they went, that he entered into a certain village and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about much serving and came to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Bid her, therefore, that she help me. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, you are careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful, and Mary has chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Here we start off at Jesus in his travels. Remember, he's been on his way to Jerusalem for one of the feasts. This would be one of the last three times. It's the first of the last three times Jesus will go to Jerusalem because of how dangerous it is there and because the Pharisees want to kill him. And 
as he's going there, he decides to stop in the village of Bethany, a village just outside Jerusalem. And while he's there, it says a certain woman named Martha received him into her home. Now, this is more than just uh, Middle Eastern hospitality. Martha's family were close friends with Jesus. There are, are three individuals that we know of in this family, Martha, Mary, and then Lazarus. Lazarus, of course, is the one that Jesus raises from the dead. So these are close friends with Jesus. Uh, They have a deep friendship together, so it's not a surprise he's staying at her house. He's welcomed into her house as he stops by Bethany. But notice verse 39 explains that she had a sister called Mary. Martha, you can see here, she is the, the specialist in the hospitality area. Well, she had a sister called Mary, which also, showing that this was more than just inviting Jesus over as a place to stay, more than just, you know, Jesus having dinner there. They invite Jesus over to teach. They get out there in the courtyard in front of the home and give Jesus the freedom to teach. And so people come over as well. And it says that Mary, as Jesus is teaching, she is hearing his word too. And it's in the imperfect tense, which means she's been listening for quite a while. Now, that's interesting because that's unheard of in in that day. When a rabbi taught, uh, women weren't even invited. It was considered a waste of time to try to teach the Bible to a woman because it'd be like trying to teach a dog to talk. I'm not saying that's how I think. I'm not saying that's how you should think. That's just how women reviewed back then. So they didn't think it was worth the time to even try to explain the scripture to a woman. Jesus, of course, we know is different, right? He welcomed everyone to hear God's word. And so Mary is right there at his feet listening to Jesus teach. But this does produce a problem. Look at verse 40. But Martha... The idea of phrase, but Martha, is in contrast to Mary. Here's Mary. She's sitting at Jesus' feet, soaking up the teaching, just fully engaged. And Martha, it mentions that she was cumbered about much serving. Unlike Mary, who's totally engaged, totally focused, she is, the word cumbered means to be distracted and anxious. So Martha, it's not that she's just serving and Mary's doing nothing. The idea here is that Mary's fully engaged, but Martha can't really listen well. She's trying to listen, but she's distracted because she's anxious. And what is she anxious about? Because of all the serving, the extensive quantity of serving that's going on. Now, again, when you had events like this out in the public courtyard, it's not like you had your own yard. Most homes shared courtyards with three or four other homes. And that was a central area where they cooked, where they, they cleaned, did laundry, where the women bathed. David, people were like, what's he doing up looking at people's showers and stuff? Well, I'm outside. That's how people did things back then. You had a dinner, you would have it out in the courtyard. I mean, everybody's flocking over. She's wanting to be hospitable and and take care of them. Because of the extensive quantity of food and drink service that was required during this time to care for the guests, she is distracted and anxious. Her problem is that Here's Mary, she gets to focus on Jesus because she's not as worried about this as she should be. And everything I need to, everything needs to be perfect. We need to be hospitable and everything needs to be the way it's supposed to be. See, Martha and Mary were only different in that Mary's prime concern was listening to Jesus and Martha's prime concern was making sure every detail of the hospitality was perfect. And eventually she gets so upset because she can't really enjoy Jesus' teaching that she says something to Jesus. Look at verse 40 in the middle. It says, and she came to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Now, I love the phrase came to here because it means to stand nearby with the implication of suddenness. 
In other words, Jesus is teaching when she does this. He's teaching, everyone's listening, and wow, that's great, chewing on whatever. And Martha finally just kind of comes on by, stands right next to him, and interrupts him and says, Lord, don't you care? The word there means to be anxious or concerned about something. Aren't you bothered by this? I mean, I'm obviously bothered by this, and you should be too. Don't you care? Aren't you anxious? Aren't you concerned? Why? Because my sister has left me to serve alone. Now, the phrase there, left me to serve alone, it means to stop helping. In other words, it wasn't that Mary didn't do anything. It's that it had come to a place where Mary was satisfied with the service, where she felt like they had done what they needed to do. There came a point when she felt things were satisfactory and she sat down to listen to Jesus teach. But Martha, she didn't come to the same conclusion. She felt like there was more to be done. And as she tried to accomplish that, she found herself being the only one who was thinking that. And so she's not so much upset that her sister's not helping. She's upset that her sister's assessment of this situation is different than hers. You know, it's interesting. I find this problem frequently in marriages. Most of the time, it's not even a fight about, well, he didn't do this or she didn't do that or she did this and he did that. It's like, well, I don't understand why they didn't think it was important. And that's where it comes down to. You're hurt or you're frustrated. You don't feel like something's a priority. And you've already built up this huge argument of what a loser that person is because they don't think like you do. Right? That's where Martha's at right now. Mary's not a slacker. It's just her assessment of the situation was vastly different than Martha's because Mary's priorities were different than Martha's. At the heart, this is an excellent question. Do you care, Lord? Good question, right? Does God care? Does Jesus care? Of course he does, yes. We know from the scriptures in 1 Peter 5, 7, casting your cares on him for he what? Cares for you, right? We know he cares for us. The Bible says that God demonstrates, he proves his love to us in that while we were still sinners, we weren't any, anyone attractive or appealing to God based on our behavior. And it was yet in light of, even though that was the case, he died for us. He proved his love because he died for us on the cross. And do you believe that's true? That God cares? That he loves you? He does. He does care and he does love you. Martha's question, of course, is slightly different than just do you care, which is where the problem comes in. Because it's not so much a question as an accusation, right? Lord, why are you not concerned with what I'm concerned about? I'm irritated at my sister right now. I'm about to be irritated with you if you don't do something. That's pretty much what she's saying. It's an accusation. Basically, Lord, I'm upset. Why aren't you upset? When things upset me, do they upset you, Lord? That's the question, really. Because if they don't, you need to fix that. (laughs) You need to fix that. Frequently, I'll hear people say, I don't know if the Lord loves me, or I don't know if the Lord cares. But many times when we do that, we express that thought. Sometimes it's really just a way to mask our real frustration. And it's that God doesn't seem to be bothered by what bothers us. Or to the same degree, we're bothered by it. And if he doesn't get in line, we accuse him of wrongdoing. And we demand he fix it, just like Martha here. She concludes, bid her, therefore, that she help me. In other words, in light of your failure to properly care for this problem, this is what you must do. That's exactly what she's saying. The word bid her is a command in the Greek. It's imperative. It means you must tell her this, Lord. (laughs) By the way, if he's Lord, you don't tell him what to do. 
you must command her, you must tell her to join me. Help me means to join in an activity or effort. She needs to do what I'm doing, otherwise she's not doing the right thing. Now let me ask you a question. Does God ever make mistakes? Of course not. Does anything ever slip his notice? No. Does he not care? Of course he cares. But there's a part that we play in understanding his care. If we look over at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, casting our cares on him for he cares for us, that word casting, it's a participle in the Greek, which means it's not the start of a sentence. In fact, you may have quoted that verse by saying, cast your cares on him for he cares for you. That's not biblical. There's a verse that comes before, and the participle is a helper to the verb, the real action we're supposed to take. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, it says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Casting, so the participle that helps the verb, and the verb is humble yourselves. How do we humble ourselves? By casting our cares upon the one who is mighty, upon the one who knows everything, upon the one who loves us. Humility is our part. It's recognizing that God doesn't make mistakes, but I do. And in light of that reality, taking the things that burden me and laying them at his feet, knowing that he has my best interest in mind. See, when Martha was getting upset at her sister and upset at the situation and agitated and all frustrated, instead of confronting the Lord and accusing him, what she should have done is go, well, Lord, I know you don't make mistakes. I know I do. So I'm probably assessing this situation incorrectly. So Lord, I'm gonna take my agitation, my anxiety, and lay it at your feet. And I'm gonna ask you to help me deal with this because I know you care about me. Better way to handle that, right? The idea here is humility. Now, Martha certainly doesn't have that humility here with her accusations. And so she gets a reply from Jesus that she's probably not looking for. It says in verse 41, and Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, you are careful and troubled about many things. Martha, Martha. Anytime you say something twice in Hebrew, it's for emphasis in the culture. That's why, remember Jesus, in the, if you have King James, it'll say, verily, verily, right? It just means what I'm saying is true. You need to understand what I'm saying is true. They would repeat it for emphasis. And so by saying her name, he's emphasizing something. I know your name, Martha. I know your concerns. I know everything about you, and I care deeply about you. You know, my wife and my family, when they use my name, it's different than anybody using my name. There's meaning behind it, right? There's depth of care behind it or concern. Jesus using her name, it's a friend. Martha, I love you. I know you. You know, I know what's going on in your heart. And I care about you deeply. I care about you deeply enough that I'm going to correct your bad attitude. He says, Martha, Martha, you are careful and troubled about many things. The word careful, it means to prioritize your heart towards something. Now, frequently, this can be used about anxiety. Sometimes it's used positively, like where it says, care for one another. That's the same word here, and the idea is prioritize your heart towards one another. Don't be selfish, but prioritize your heart towards being other-centered. Most of the time, the way it's used is when our priorities are out of whack, when we have prioritized something in our heart that we should not, and we become anxious because of that wrong prioritization. See, Martha prioritized the hospitality being perfect, and thus that produced anxiety (laughs) because it wasn't the way she wanted it to be. 
Now, that anxiety then manifested itself outwardly in that she was troubled. And the word there, troubled, means outward agitation. She felt anxious inside because she had prioritized her heart towards something that it shouldn't be prioritized on, and that produced outward agitation. Jesus tells Martha, you're not upset because I've done something wrong. You're upset because your heart has wrong priorities. That's why she was upset. And, you know, Jesus says, you're this way about many things. In other words, Martha, this isn't just an isolated incident. This is who you are right now. This wrong prioritization in her heart resulted in her being upset, not just today, but regularly in her life. And so she needs to correct that prioritization if she's going to experience peace. And so Jesus, in verse 42, he points out how to fix it. He says to her, Martha, one thing, in contrast to this priority you have that's causing anxiety and an outward agitation, one thing is needful. And then he pauses. That word, the colon there means he pauses, he stops. The phrase there, one thing, it means there's a single thing. Remember, she's agitated and she's anxious, and pr- which produces agitation, outward agitation about many things. And, and it's like the Lord looks at all those things and goes, there's only one thing, <laughs> that you lack right now, that you need to make a priority in your life. There's an easy fix. All these other things need to go by the wayside. You need to make one thing your number one priority. And then he pauses. Now, why would he pause with that statement? Because the phrase one thing or a single thing should trigger something in Martha's mind. A common rabbinical method of instruction was to quote the first word of a verse or the first word of a section of the scripture while the listeners would then finish it. For example, when Jesus was on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's the first line of a very important psalm. I believe it's Psalm 22. And it's a psalm that talks about how they must prophesize. A thousand years before it happens, prophesies the crucifixion of the Messiah. And there he's on the cross going, Eloi, Eloi, laba sabachthani. He's bringing their attention. Why is he quoting Psalm 22? So that they will read through it and look up and see it fulfilled right before their eyes. Being a good rabbi, even as he's dying. And here, Jesus being a good rabbi again, he says, one thing is what you need, Martha. Where does that one thing come from? Look at Psalm 27. Turn to Psalm 27 with me. Psalm 27 and verse four. How does it start? One thing. Martha would recognize that phrase. David says, one thing have I desired of the Lord. And that's what I'm gonna seek after. What is it? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why? So I can behold the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. David said, that's the single thing. That's the one thing. Now, if we isolate this verse and that's all we talked about and we move back into Luke 10, this verse would be beautiful. But if we just isolate this verse and don't look at what came before, we miss an important truth. When does David say these words when he's in a really bad situation? Look at verse one. David starts out this song by saying, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes, they came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. I don't know about you, but I don't know of any human being that wants to eat me for breakfast today. I didn't wake up today and, and, and you know, have a text going, you're mine, Ramirez. I'm going to devour you today. I mean, of course, that's what the enemy wants to do, right? 
He just doesn't send me any text messages. And I ignore, I've already blocked his number, so. <laughs> David was in a bad situation. It was, things were dark. He needed rescuing. He didn't have enough strength to handle that situation. He goes, but you know what? When they came against me, they wanted to eat me alive. He goes, they stumbled and fell. The Lord took care of me. They didn't succeed. They didn't succeed at all. And he says, and so because of that, though a host shouldn't camp up against me, more enemies, a whole army wants to you know, have me for breakfast. He goes, my heart shall not fear. Though war, not just one army, but multiple armies should rise up against me. In this, I'm gonna be confident. What, what is it? That's where verse four comes in. He says, in this thing, I'm gonna find my security. In this thing, I'm gonna trust in. This is the thing. What does David desire most in his worst situations? See, since the Lord was David's light, since the Lord was David's salvation, since the Lord was David's strength, he finds confidence in these horrible circumstances. He's trusting that God's already gonna come through for him. He's already convinced that God will succeed and will do it in whatever way he sees fit. He's fine with that. So what's the one thing he wants? Not necessarily that God will come through for him. He's already, that's a given to him. What's the one thing he wants? The one thing he's gonna trust in, the one thing he's gonna find security in is verse four. This is the priority that he's set in his heart. This is the thing he's looking forward to more than anything in the midst of a bad situation. He says, this is what I have asked from the Lord. This is what I'm seeking after. This is what I'm requesting to secure from God. And what is it? That I may dwell in his house all the days of my life. The word there, dwell, it means to sit down, to make something your home. He says, I want to go to God's house and I want to make it my home. I want to sit down there. I know right now I might have a fight on my hands, but I know the Lord, he'll figure out how to come through for me. I don't, whatever way he wants, I'm good. But my thing I'm looking for, I want to get there. I want to get back to the temple. I want to hang out with him. I want to sit at his feet. I want to learn from him. That's what he says here. Why does he want to be there? He says, to behold the beauty of the Lord. The word they behold means to see something so that you understand it. It's not just to look at it, but to see it in such a way, into such a depth where you can really study it and actually understand it. And what does he want to see and understand? The beauty of the Lord. The word beauty there, it means his kindness, his pleasantness, his grace. We sang that song today, I see your face, you're beautiful. That's, again, it's not because we get goosebumps, we go, oh, I can see Jesus' face in my mind, he is beautiful. That's not what we're talking about here. We're, what we're talking about is this idea of what is Jesus like? He's kind, he's pleasant, you know, he's gracious. It's the attributes of God that we learn in the word. What David's saying is, I want to learn more. I want to learn more about the character of God. I want to see it more clearly. I want to understand it. And then he says, as I learn and I understand more of it, he says, I want to inquire. The word there, inquire, means I want to think about it. I want to study it. That's what the word means, to inspect diligently. I want to study it. I want to grasp it in ways I never have before. Now, let me ask you a question. What David just said here, doesn't that sound exactly like what Mary's doing right now? She is zeroed in, dialed in on Jesus, taking in his every word. That is her priority in that moment. And Martha's distracted. She can't do that because that's not her priority in that moment. And so Jesus, when he says this to her, one thing is necessary. He's telling her, Martha, you need to get back to David. 
what he wanted. That needs to become your priority. That's why he pauses. Now, after letting that concept of that one single thing being the most important priority in in Martha's life, after he lets that truth sink into her mind, Jesus tells her, I'm not going to give in to your demands, Martha. He says to her, that one thing, that single thing, is what you lack and what you need. You need to get back to David's heart. And he goes, Mary's chosen that already. She's already made the choice to make that a priority in her heart. And so I'm not going to take that away from her. The phrase there, chosen, it means to prefer one choice over another choice. You've got choices in front of you. And Mary has chosen, he says, the good part. It's interesting way that word, those, that phrase in the Greek, it actually literally, Jesus says to her, Mary has chosen the best dish on the table. That's what Jesus says to her. Mary's chosen the best dish on the table. In other words, Martha, if your priority is going to be hospitality right now, if that's going to be the number one priority in your heart and not sitting at my feet, you will never be able to prepare a dish that will be better than the one Mary already has. Never. You will always come up short in trying to fulfill that priority, which means you will always experience anxiety, which means you will always be outwardly agitated. So Martha you need to make this the new priority in your life. Spending time with me. Learning about me. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.